Welcome to the Landmark Theatre's Q&A podcast. Today we'll hear a Q&A with filmmaker Rob Garber about his new documentary, What She Said, The Art of Pauline Kael, moderated by film critic and friend of Pauline Kael, Michael Stragow. This conversation was recorded at Landmark's New Art Theatre during the film's opening weekend. Thank you. Thanks, thanks everybody, for coming. Rob, I'd like to thank you for making a film about a critic who... Uh, rose to prominence on the power of her individual voice, uh, especially in this era when uh, people are going to movies based on what aggregate <laughs> symbols they've acquired on different websites. So uh, I think for you to make this film now and to give people a sense of what it is to be an artist as a critic uh, is, is a great thing, and I really appreciate you doing that. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, I didn't make it to, to make anybody happy, really, except myself and... Um, you know, because I had read Pauline as a, as a young person and um, her voice stayed with me. Yeah. Well, what was it? Where, where, I mean, what was the impact? I mean, do you remember the first piece you read by her that kind of took the top of your head off? I, I don't. I mean, it was, um, you know, it was in the, in the early 80s. I was in college and, um, you know, I think I, it, probably it was, if I had to name a film, it was The Shining. I remember her <laughs> review of The Shining because it was so... Because I didn't like The Shining, and I didn't think it made sense. And I, and I thought, you know, like the end of 2001, Kubrick's thinking was a little muddled, maybe, you know, with, um, with the reincarnation and everything. And, Paul, and Pauline just, like, dove in right at it. And I just remember thinking, who is this woman? You know, she's just so gutsy and straightforward and gets right to the point and is obviously incredibly well-read and uh, intelligent, but also funny and and just kind of caustic and just so many so many good qualities and you know that's that's what I thought when I had the idea to make the film is that this is a, this is a person who would be fascinating to learn about mm-hmm. and when did you decide I mean when did this come to fruition with so you'd be re- you'd been reading her you know until she retired and then uh, you know she dies in 2001 um, uh, what made you pick up on her at, at the point you did? Well, I don't know. It was um, summer of 2014. I just I read something about her online, and uh, it just sparked an idea. I mean, I was uh, over the years I've made my own short films and tried to get longer projects off the ground, and and hadn't been successful. And I got seed money to make this. I got a, enough money to start shooting, and I knew I could get to, you know, a partial rough cut. At least, and um, you know, once I got people like, like you and and Carrie Ricky and and uh, uh, David Picker, and that led to other people, and then I got Tarantino and David O. Russell, and um, you know, it it became something, and uh, so it was just a long process. But the first thing I did was just pick up the phone and call Gina. You know, I just looked her up, and um, you know, that was. That was not easy either, because Gina was not on board with the film, with the idea of it. She wasn't uh, cooperative with a biography that was written by Brian Kello, who's in my movie. And she, you know, she's a sensitive person, and you know her as well, I think. But she's not like Pauline. You know, she's she's more introverted, and she's not a, a cultural carnivore. You know, like mm-hmm. Pauline was. Uh-huh. 
Although she and Pauline, I mean, I've got to say, I was a witness to their, you know, relationship, and I, uh, and uh, she, and she, Gina is a very strong personality on her own. I remember visiting with Pauline in Great Barrington when Pauline's review of 1900 uh, had just come out, and I was having a cup of coffee with Pauline, and Gina came down with a friend of hers, and they just said, "Oh, we just saw the worst movie ever made last night." And I said, "What was it?" And she said, "1900." <laughs> <laughs> so, and she liked to, you know, assert her independence, even though she was totally devoted to getting that copyright. And all those years, she's you know, yeah. spent as a typist. And what you went in, you, the movie is now subtitled "The Art of Pulling Kale." Is that was it? That the key for you as a filmmaker is what you wanted to focus on in, in terms of the importance of Pauline? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I didn't, I knew I was making a film about a critic, and that's not, you know, when you first hear that idea, it's like, whoa, I got to see that movie. <laughs> but um, I, I don't know, how is it going to be? But, um, uh, you know, her writing was different, and it was visual, and I knew I wanted to make a, a movie that was cinematic because. You know, for me, Pauline wasn't a, a film critic. She was a writer, and her subject was movies. And um, it was also just so personal. And I had the idea from the beginning that I wanted to try her, to tell her own story through pieces of other movies. And so when I came on that idea, it just opened up so many things for me, that, that ideas on how I could um, show, show it. And, and as, it, as it turned out, there wasn't that much available of Pauline. And so it kind of became an, a necessity to use footage from other movies. I mean, I wasn't doing it for that reason, but really there were only like seven or eight good interviews that she did. And uh, the other ones that she did that are probably very good were either destroyed or lost. Um, there was an interview she supposedly did in the 60s with somebody named Joe Pine, <laughs> who was, I guess, sort of like the Hannity of his... Yeah, he was a big radio personality. Of his day. Time, yeah. And uh, apparently he had just attacked her on the air. Uh, yeah. And it was a television show, I think. And tell that was lost. But mm -hmm. there were things like that that I would have loved to have found. Mm. The, uh, what, what surprised you when you actually dug into uh, her life and her... Uh, art intertwining. I mean, what was the, uh, something you didn't expect to find that you found? Um, you know, I think the most surprising thing was the, the scene where she takes the job as a copywriter and Sarah Jessica Parker reads it, but it's from an interview that Pauline did later in her life. And she ta she's talking about, you know, when if she, she, she was offered this job as a, uh, in advertising and she was promoted and they put her name on the door of the office and she knew when she uh, when they were putting her name up, that she would have to quit because it would mean the end of what she was really um, working towards, which was being a professional writer and not just a writer, but somebody with her own voice. And, um, and she did. And she had Gina, you know, uh, she was a single mother in the 50s. I mean, how difficult could that have been? Mm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You, know, you bring up a funny thing with the... Uh, in terms of making a movie about a, a, a critic who had very definite and vivid opinions and being a filmmaker trying to illustrate it with clips of movies. Like, you know, she hated the apartment, <laughs> but she used the apartment to 
illustrate that moment in her life. And uh, I know because I wrote the Rolling Stone cover story for Raiders of the Lost Ark, and I never heard the end of it from her. But uh, <laughs> she, you know, you use that as a part of an illustration for what she when she's talking about trash and the idea that there's good trash or bad trash or that talented people could do an honest job of work at trash. Did you find yourself conflicted at certain points using movies that because at other points in the movie, you're totally on track with her. I mean, I love the way you cut to West Side Story, which is the, uh, the which she wrote the famous uh, pan of where she said, uh, where she talks about the event that you quote, where she was going with a cultured New Yorker, I think she said. Yes, uh, right. And uh, it has her great line, um, sex is the great leveler, taste is the great divider. <laughs> but you, uh, you, you, know, you have that, those to me, they seem incredibly campy, those shots of West Side Story, they're perfectly illustrated. But at other points, you're sort of using movies at odds with her own kind of opinion of them. How yeah. did you feel about that? I mean, I didn't, I didn't see it as being at odds. I, j I really tried to illustrate, as I said, her life through the movies of whatever period it was. So you know, when I used the shots of the apartment, uh, it was it was the 60s, or it was the early 60s. And, um, you know, there's a shot of uh, Shirley MacLaine being sick in bed, and Pauline is writing about how she was ready to give up criticism. Mm -hmm. And to me, it, you know, it doesn't have anything to do with, uh, with her opinion of the apartment, but it just, you know, I, I just worked very hard to try to make the movie flow and use the right pieces mm -hmm. that fit whether or not she wrote about them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Also, when you're putting together kind of a collage of voices of these you know, many people that you were uh, lucky and skilled enough to, to get to talk to you, um, it, 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 at one point does the documentary maker say, well, this guy is saying exactly what I think about this subject. And, and what, when is it just I'm presenting a multiplicity of points of view for, for us to share from? Well, I think, you know, when, you, when, for me anyway, when I start to have the feeling like, well, this is becoming too much of a... Uh, what is the word? Hagiography. Hey, mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, and I and I love Pauline and I love her writing, but I don't think she's perfect, and she wasn't. She certainly wasn't a saint. And if somebody tells me she could be cruel, you know, that's that's going to be in the movie. And uh, of course, you know, I would think too at at times. Well, what would she think? You know, and she would think it's, it's bullshit. You know, you can't you can't just show one side of somebody and not the other side. I don't think she would have liked to have seen that side of herself in a in a documentary, but you know, it's it's a documentary. It's 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 not fiction. Yeah, and she was never uh, the 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 excitement of part of that period when she was breaking through as a critic was that there were real arguments and people really did go after each other, but they went after each other on the basis of sensibility and ideas and aesthetics, and it was real. Uh, and I think that was part of what uh, drew drew us into that ongoing conversation she was having, not just with other critics, but with directors and writers and the people in Hollywood who she was trying to shame into doing better work. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and the thing I love about her is that she always was about. Uh, I mean, she had this sense, this deeper sense of what it was all about. You know, it wasn't just about me versus you, and I'm I'm right and you're not right. But it was about. You know, it was about movies, and it was about culture, and it was about art, and movies were really just the thing that she made her living at. But she, as you know, she was just one of the most well-read people, I think, on the planet. I mean, she read all the major authors and poets in her early 20s, and not just one of their books, but their whole canon, right? Yeah. I mean, and... Um, 
So I think by the time that she got to write about movies, it was like literature was her foundation. And movies seemed fun. You know, they were, they couldn't go as deep as a novel and they did different things well. And she recognized that and she just had this sense of, of fun about her. And that's, you know, I, I, it was really important to get that through in the movie. Yeah. Um, no, when she stopped writing about movies, I mean, she actually she didn't like lose her love for movies as an idea or for the movies she'd loved in the past, but she really didn't feel compelled to see every thing anymore. She really let that go, and I would call her up and I'd say, what, what are you doing? She said, I'm reading Laura Siegel's My First American or some obscure Schnitzler novel. I mean, she was having a good time absorbing the kind of culture that, that she loved. Yeah, without... and she loved SNL and she loved Sex in the City and... Uh... I heard from Gina, like, even near the very end of her life, she was starting to listen to hip-hop. And even Gina was saying, like, are you really interested in hip-hop, or are you just kind of, you want to, like, keep current? And uh, well, I think she probably was. She yeah. probably did like some. Yeah. One thing I can't overemphasize enough is just her generosity. And, and, and I think that's sort of what gets lost in some of the Paulette discussions sometimes, is that uh, she wasn't cultivating, certainly not in my experience, she wasn't, like, although it's very amusing to hear Paul Schrader say it, she wasn't this uh, general of criticism saying, I'm going to put this lieutenant here and this lieutenant there. Uh, she was look, reaching out to writers who she thought had some energy or talent and, and trying to see if she could do anything to help them. And she never was that plugged into any power structure where she could just say, you get this job and you get this job. Yeah. She was just really, really helpful to people no, and, and to an I, astonishing degree. I think she loved to because she was in that same position and she knew... You know, like Jaime Manrique says, the the um, the writer, you know, he wrote a piece for Film Comment and showed it to Pauline, and she helped push it through to the editor. And you know, she was all about other people's success as well. I think, yeah, you know, as I, much as as long as they didn't compete with her. Yeah, and I think <laughs> what you said just now that uh, you know, having experienced the experience she had, where she really didn't think she could make it, uh, it was really amazing to her. And then when the, the energy she put into to doing her job when she got that job was incredible. Uh, I just was telling uh, Rob, I just came from a party where it was Ron Shelton, who was uh, a director she championed at different times, and uh, he told me uh, she called him when she was reviewing Under Fire, which was his first f film he got a credit on as a co-writer, but he actually wrote the final draft of the film. And, uh, and I knew at that time that she had been very ill and, and had fainted and, and had a, you know, a, a, even some hospital time. And he said, well, he called her. She called me this day uh, and asked me you know, about to check on something in the script. And it asked me if I was a ball player. And nobody knew I was a ball player at that point. She didn't know if maybe Roger Angel told her something about a baseball reference in the movie. <laughs> and I said, this is insane, because she was like probably in the hospital or just out of it when she did it. But her commitment and her reaching out to people of talent was, to me, the most inspirational yeah. thing. Should we take some questions? Yeah, sure. Um, anybody have anything you'd like to ask? Yes, sir. Yes. Um, do you have specific examples where, or criticism of these directors as directors vision or improved their art or perhaps created a, a new way of doing Oh, I think, I don't have examples, but I think there are directors who would say, wouldn't want to admit that they read Pauline and got advice from her. And I know just from going through her archives that there were a lot of directors who would send scripts to her. I'm sure you know this, Mike, and uh, you know want her opinion. 
And when she got the job for Beatty, after that kind of fell through, Paramount kept her on as a consultant, and she read a lot of scripts and gave opinions. Um, but one of the things I found in the archives, which sort of illustrates that, is she, a series of letters from Ray Stark. And uh, I just actually showed the movie at USC on Wednesday in the Ray Stark Theater, and I thought of him because he, he had a relationship with Pauline. They were friends. They went out to lunch. Uh, he was one of the big producers of his era in the 60s and 70s and did Barbara Streisand movies. And I found like letters from him to her over about 10 years, and they start out admiring and warm and friendly <laughs> and go progressively more <laughs> disappointed and kind of angry with trying not to show it. Did you get the flowers? And, you know, really, I have to disagree with you about... Uh, Slapshot, or you know, whatever, whatever the movie was that he was, he had produced that, and he wasn't happy with what she wrote. But uh, I think directors really listened to her, yeah. and and valued her opinion. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I mean, there's something about, and I think you get this in the movie. I think the main contribution is that writing about their movies in a way that made clear someone got them in their. It was like a very instrumental in, in giving them confidence, especially the younger directors that she got at early points, that she championed at early points of their career, like Scorsese or De Palma or Spielberg. Uh, I mean, that, more than shaping an individual project, I think that is probably, you know, as much, the greatest thing she did in sort of helping the American movie renaissance happen for the brief time when it happened. Yeah. I mean, you can see, like, from that telegram from Spielberg, you're the only one who got Jaws. I mean... <clears throat> whether or not that's true, I think it was because she wrote that the film was really about you know the uh, the the, ma the macho brute being being defeated. You know the Robert Shaw character who gets eaten by the shark, and and uh, you know apparently Pauline was just laughing her head off when that <laughs> happened. <laughs> <laughs> yes, anyway, yes, sir. How did you get Gina on, on board? It's a huge thing. Mean... Well, it was just over time. I mean when. I went to Great Barrington and met her first. You know, I sort of asked for her blessing, and she didn't give it to me. And she, she didn't really even want me to make the film. But I thought I had something good. I thought she would be on board eventually, and I just started making the movie. And then as I went along, I showed her rough cuts. Um, and, you know, she actually helped me get a, a couple of things right that weren't accurate. And um, eventually she shared these photos with me that... I hadn't seen, and I don't think anybody had seen these, especially these great old black and white photos from her Berkeley years. And then she found these home movies. Yeah, and she had not seen them herself. I, I rented a 16 millimeter projector and went and drove up to Great Barrington and we watched them together. Yeah, so, and then, you know, then she saw where I was going, that I wasn't, it wasn't just a hit job, and she, she sat down for a couple of interviews. And, uh, but she really didn't sign all the releases until about two months ago. So, oh, Wow. Yes, back there. Okay, it was just the question about the intersection of the artist's life and private life, the artist's work and private life, right. and, and what you discovered about that or didn't. Right. I, you know, I think it's in her writing, and sometimes you have to read between the lines. Obviously, she didn't write... Uh, autobiographically so much, but there are, you know, there are points, like there was a scene we had, originally I had a two hour and six minute cut, and it, we cut it down to the length that it is now, but I had a scene on Frederick Wiseman's high school, and Pauline writes about her adolescence in that, and 
you know, there were there were times like that where she became directly personal. Um, but I think, you know, I think her work life was just a lot more satisfying than her, her well, definitely than her romantic life. I mean, she had said kind of famously once she was done with men after 40. <laughs> and, uh, you know, she put, she, Mike knows this better than I do, but she, I think she just put her whole self into her work. And um, she, and I think, you know, her, some of her longings maybe, and some of her, her, her loves and lusts are, are in those, those essays that she wrote. You know, yeah. One of the, the favorite things is the quote from *Casualties of War*, which is, again, it's just a little snapshot of a piece of her life at a certain time. But it is so revealing of who she was as a person, as well as who she was as a critic. Yeah, for sure. Anyone else? Yeah. Well, I don't know. You know. Uh, I never lived in the same city as Pauline for any length of time. You know, I. I uh, um, she loved talking about movies. I mean, um, she did have a group of friends she'd see movies with in New York, some of whom were, you know, would have been considered Paulettes. But, you know, she loved arguing, you know. I mean, that's what people don't realize about that time, uh, as we were saying before. It, it wasn't just arguing with your critical enemies, it was arguing with your critical friends. And um, she would... Uh, love to like test you and you know and it was fun because she was you know it was so engaging and uh, and witty and I remember um, you know long after we had been friends I mean she would think nothing of calling me up and saying I never want you to write about this director again and I'd like laugh and I mean you talked about David Lean I wrote a long piece for the Atlantic Monthly once on, on David Lean who I think is a great director <laughs> and so Pauline and I quoted how it was you know he's in the odd position of like mainstream critics think he's the greatest director who ever lived and all the highbrow critics or all the chic critics or all the critics like people really care about I <laughs> think he's like nothing uh, and so uh, and I quoted Pauline and um, and she called me up, uh, you know, aghast, and, and I just laughed. I said, you know, Pauline, I didn't quote the part where you said David Lean doesn't know how to use scenery. <laughs> and, and she just, you know, cackled over the phone, and uh, we went on from there. I mean, it was part of the relationship. Uh, but um, was I... She did like the Dickens movies from Lean, though. No, she did. Uh, well, brief Encounter. Yeah, no, yeah. she actually, and she actually liked pa Passage to India, which was the first movie uh, he made after uh, she shut him up for 15 years, <laughs> but uh, anyway, yes, sir. Okay, the, the question is how she ended up in uh, Great Barrington, uh, Massachusetts, and do you want to... Uh, yeah, she, she, uh, she had enough money in the early 70s to buy this fixer-upper, and it wasn't, it looks like a beautiful house in the movie, but it was, um, it was in bad shape, and her and Gina supposedly fixed it up, but I think, you know, she wasn't naturally a city person, and, uh, you know, I have a piece of uh, her interview where she talks about the oppression she felt living in New York, and, yeah, yeah, so she would go back and forth, but she would, yeah, 
I think I agree. Do you know why she moved so far? No, away? I mean it, it is a big artist town. I mean Great Barrington, Massachusetts. I mean it's it's got a lot of galleries and uh, you know theaters and and things like that. And I mean it's a real magnet. I, I wonder if Gina. I think Gina actually found the house. Uh, oh. So I think Gina might have had something to do. Gina herself was a painter. Right. Uh, of you know some very interesting. We knew her mostly at a time when she was doing these massive. Uh, paintings, and so I, I actually wouldn't be surprised if she was the prime mover toward them uh, moving in that spot. And, and and it was good for her to get that far away from New York because, as, as uh, Rob said, she really, really did not like New York. And I think actually the bigger she got as a personality, the more oppressive it was for her. Mm. Yeah, she's. I heard stories that she would avoid people on the street, avoid going to certain parties, and. There was somebody who was with her walking across the street, and uh, they saw Otto Primager, and and uh, she said, "Well, let's let's take 52nd, not 53rd, because I, <laughs> I don't want to run into him." Yeah, I mean, the thing about what I love about Poland, what I loved what David O. Russell said in the movie about her being a contradictory figure. I think it was Russell yes. who says that. I mean, and that she embraces contradictions. Um, you know, she would do some even apart from movies, general cultural life. I mean, she'd go to, her friend would say he'd pull her, she'd pull him into seeing some, uh, uh, you know, lecture that Cynthia Ozick was giving that uh, someone else was introducing Cynthia Ozick and the two were fawning over each other and she couldn't stand it and she left. And then, you know, but she would be mailing copies of Ozick's, you know, next book out because she thought wow. she was such a terrific writer. I mean, she was like that in her, in her life. And you know, up to the end, the, the Craig Sullivan quote about, you know, uh, <laughs> you could, there, there's so many bad writers, uh, yeah. and, and, and she comes back with him about the cliche he's just said, that was so polling. <laughs> uh, is there any final, this one more, and yes, in the middle there. Yeah. Yes, there was an organization, Jess was the artist who painted the murals, and. Uh, there was an organization in the Bay Area that, uh, it's not a national landmark, but they wanted to try to preserve the murals. When I shot, it was early 2015, and the house was up for sale. There was a family that owned it for a long time. Since then, uh, there's a man who, uh, and his wife who bought it, and the murals are still there. And so um, part of the deal, I guess, in him agreeing to buy the house was to preserve the murals. Yeah, I mean that's fascinating that you you can see how much, you know, how much art she just loved in her life. She wanted to be surrounded by it. Well, thanks, Rob, for including that and in so many details that even people like me didn't know before they saw your movie. <laughs> and thanks for talking with us tonight. Thanks, Mike. Thanks pleasure. for doing this. Thank you for coming. We open in New York on Christmas Day for two weeks. If you have friends there. And what she said is playing right here at the New Art through Thursday. So if you'd like to please tell your friends. Thanks for listening to the Landmark Theatre's Q&A podcast. If you want to hear more conversations with filmmakers about the latest independent, foreign, and documentary films opening at Landmark Theatres, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app or visit our podcast website at landmarktheaters.podbean.com. You can also check out our YouTube channel for videos of Q&As and other exclusive content. See you next time.